0: Okay, Brianna, like you've lived in these countries, you've worked for these brands, you've had these experiences. Like, how are you going to connect these dots into something that gives back? And I mm-hmm. think that was my growth, was actually taking ti- a time out and really processing every experience to figure out my next Hey,
1: hey, hey, everybody. My name's Ryan Atkinson, and you. Uh, on the business cloud. Today, we are welcoming Brianna Kikolin, the founder of to the podcast. I'm super excited to have her on today, talk about entrepreneurship and sustainability. So Brianna, thank you so much for coming on. Welcome to the show.
0: Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here.
1: Like I said before, uh, we hopped on as a recording, you have an awesome, impressive background. And I was reading one article that you actually have spent time living in Uganda and South Africa. Um, so I want to start there can you just like context about your experiences there and like what you were doing over there because I think that is so cool I always admire people that live overseas
0: yeah it's funny I was actually talking to one of my colleagues today about my background and um, she was like how did you get to this place like you're such this is well, she's like a humanitarian space in world. Like, what is this? What is this? I don't even understand it. Um, yeah. So I, I actually, even before I, I went there, I always wanted to work for the UN or state department. Like that's always been my, my North star in life. Um, I think I'm just a globalist by nature. So anywhere where there's an organization that's like working together on global issues, I'm just like, yes, that's for me. Um, I actually started working for the secret service prior to going to Uganda. Um, yeah. So I worked for the secret service when I was in uh, university in DC and then after I graduated. And so I got, I, that wasn't the way that I wanted to, to be able to get into like state department and mm-hmm. foreign affairs and work my way to the UN. And then this opportunity came up for Uganda. Um, and I had some advisors say, you know if you want to work in the humanitarian space you really want to get field experience yeah. and be on the ground in the trenches understanding what and I'm not talking about these issues but experiencing them and yeah. so that was really what pushed me to to live in south and east africa and have those experiences for myself and understand the humanitarian nonprofit space that's so.
1: interesting And so when you have these experiences, I mean, coming back and like reflecting on those, I mean, how does that shape you as a person? Because studying abroad or like traveling abroad, you always come back and it's like, oh, wow, like I'm completely different. I understand different perspectives, but I've never done work like that. And I feel like it would be just so transformational. So how does that like really shape you as a person as you reflect back on that?
0: I think the biggest takeaway is you think when people go, it's going to, you're going to impact other people, but the reality is it impacts you. That's (laughs) awesome. You realize, oh, okay, there's just these different ways of living and not like, you know, yes, a civil war, which is what Uganda experienced, like that is not living, you know, but like being able to have a beautiful hut and have access to food and water and be surrounded by family, like who am I to say that that's not living, (laughs) (laughs) you know so I'm like it's and not have and like I just had the most peaceful nights where there's like no electricity and you didn't have access to wi-fi and you just finally were like so disconnected and you felt like you could really be there with your thoughts and you could and just be present in the moment and I think that's part of the challenge right being and where we're at in the U.S. and having 24 seven access it is sometimes it's exhausting we don't ever have like a cave to go back into and to reset unless you go on vacation. And even then everyone still expects you to be accessible. So I think that that was a huge takeaway for me is just that, who are we to say what way of life is better or worse? Um, and so I just had, um, I learned, I feel like more than I gave. And, um, I just became a firm believer that you need to alchemize like your own story and your own dots and not go into someone else's culture and go into someone else's space and tell them what to do unless of course it's like a beneficial like way in which you're going to ingrain yourself in that culture and and carry and 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 give back but if it's just like i'm going to come in and everyone needs to wear like for example tom's shoes they dropped off all their shoes they're like Mm -hmm. everyone here needs to wear shoes But nobody's thinking that, realizing there's parasites in the dust. And so to be in a hot, closed-toed canvas shoe is not a conducive fix. And so what people do is they recycle tires Mm -hmm. and make flip-flops out of them. So it's like little things like that that made me think like, okay, yeah, people mean well, but like people need to stay in their lane of, of what actually are problems worth working on
1: that's super interesting so they dropped off a ton of shoes like closed toed shoes but they didn't wear them because like it's hot and it's probably uncomfortable but they're wearing shoes that are made out of like rubber tires
0: yeah they're just wearing flip-flops because you want as much like free you know breeze on your feet and so what I did is I was like all my friends are not going to wear all this Ugandan jewelry as much as I want them (laughs) to so I was like I'll just buy all the shoes and bring them back and regift them which is what
1: I did (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh my God, that is so crazy. That's so <laughs> yeah. like I see that's like the benefits uh for traveling abroad is you get to have like those experiences. I would never even think that uh that'd be like a thinking process, but now that I know that. <laughs>
0: yeah. But I think the biggest thing too is like I just like to be, I like to connect, I like to understand other people's way of life. I yeah. like to be like to have my assumptions, you know, be expanded and broadened and um challenged. And so it just keeps you really grateful and present and that was really my takeaway um and so i really enjoyed it though
1: yeah i get the sense that you're very mindful of yourself and when you're around others is there some sort of like i don't want to say like technique but like is there some sort of like technique you use like to like really exert this like mindfulness
0: i think after traveling to all the countries i went to i've been to that you realize there is a universal language which is just mm-hmm. understanding human body language and their are mm-hmm. eye, people's eyes and feeling energy. <laughs> so I think I was a little girl. I was just always like very empathetic and could always be, I was very aware of like everyone's emotional state, like in my family and right. my extended family. I was like, Oh, something's off. Okay. Nothing. And people are like, no, there's nothing wrong. I'm like, no, there's something off here. Um, but I think it comes with time. And like, even I get up leveled, like when I moved to the West coast, And from Baltimore to San Diego, all of a sudden, like mindful eating had never really registered. Like I kind of had been on that kick. And then when I was exposed to, you know, why eating organic made sense and all of these different things, I was like, okay, like that upped my level of consciousness. But I think I'm just a boots. I'm like a nuts and bolts girl. It was like boots, boots and nuts. Um, no, that doesn't make sense. But, um. I, a soup, soup, wait, is it soup to nuts
1: soup? I don't, I don't know it, but I I, kind of get get the thought. I I know what you're saying. (laughs) Like,
0: I like to know the mechanics of everything. Like Mm. your t-shirt, like where that fan comes from. Like, I just love manufacturing and supply chain and really just understanding the process of like a physical good, um, process.
1: That is really interesting. Um, And I do want to talk about that, uh, your experience, like with these supply chains and some of these factories um, that you visited, like worldwide, Uh, can you tell us about when you were first like exposed and how you're exposed to traveling and checking out like supply chains and factories, Um, and you can kind of just give us an insight into like what those factories are like inside. I've never been in one, uh, but so I would love to hear it.
0: Yeah. So for me, after I did humanitarian work, I ended up in the for-profit space because I did not like to ask for money
1: yep, um, for
0: nonprofits. And so, but now I ask for money all the time for fundraising. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but I think at the time what I found frustrating was like people only wanted to give money in nonprofits for like pineapple seeds, but they didn't want to pay for the gas to get to the villages. So it was very limiting. And I think I just genuinely do believe in capitalism except with con- like a conscious capitalism is what I believe in. Yeah. So like, yeah, there should be an exchange of energy for goods and services and then you just tack on like your expectations socially and environmentally around that. Yeah. So for me, um after I left east africa i had a pretty traumatic experience where i was actually kidnapped and so that's why i moved home (laughs) so yeah which is like i I, so that in the humanitarian space is like very common i know like in the non-humanitarian space people are like that's like the worst thing but like in that field you're like yeah like at least once or twice like each person's like had that experience and so um yeah so having going through that um, I decided to take a break and and move back to the US. And then Under Armour was recruiting for supply chain manufacturing. So I ended up moving to Baltimore and saying, I'm just gonna take a break and be with like a larger corporation that just has more benefits and a little more stability. Um, ironically, I felt like it was more dangerous in Baltimore than it was actually like in Fair. the village I lived in Uganda. But um Because there was like no guns where I was, but there's like a lot of guns in Baltimore. Um, And I love, love, love Baltimore. But it was definitely just funny to have my family be so concerned for me when I lived in Uganda. And I was like, you should be more concerned now. (laughs) (laughs) But um, yeah, so I started in supply chain sourcing and they had a trip coming up to Central America for their um, apparel factories. And I just put my name in the ring and I was like, hey, I, I would like to see this. I I want to know what's up. Um, And so we did like a one-week tour from Honduras to El Salvador to Nicaragua. And I just got to go in the belly of the beast and see how our clothes were made. And I got to, in El Salvador, I actually got to sew. um, One of the factory owners put me on the factory floor and he was like, you're going to learn how to sew a machine, which is really, really hard. Um, And then actually... Uh, sew a garment. And so I had, it took me like two hours to thread the machine and everyone's like yelling in Spanish. And it's like, there's no AC and it's like hot. And I was like, whoa, this is a lot. And then we did compression fabric. So at the time we were doing like alter ego shirts, like Batman and like Superman. And so I had to like figure out how to like not sew my fingers and do this. And so this whole process, like my garment looked insane at the end. But I, I, I remember coming home that day and being like, wow, nobody knows this is how our clothes are made. And that's just one part, right? That's not even including the farm. That's not including the textile uh, manufacturing plant. It's just, that's one piece of the pie. So that was my takeaway. This whole system, this infrastructure is like very hidden, but mm. we are all complicit because we're all wearing clothes. So why is there such a disconnect? in this understanding of global manufacturing for clothes. And so that was really my big move and transition. And then from there, I became the first one to volunteer. So I was like, always going to factories, always willing. I just wanted to see the whole process
1: that's super interesting yeah so like how are these buildings like built out like when we say factory like how big are these things Uh, I know you just said there's like no AC everyone's yelling in Spanish but like what's it like inside like what are the I'm just curious like what are the people like um, inside these factories like what's kind of their mindset I'm assuming very very blue collar Um, but yeah what's their mindset what are these factories like from the outside and like really on the inside workings
0: Yeah. So, um, most factory owners are like incredibly wealthy. They own multiple Mm. plants. They have other businesses. They're usually very tied in with the local or the country's government. So they like love to take you out to like (laughs) all the places. So I got to go to like really nice places in each Mm. country I was in. Um, but then the factories themselves are usually they're based off of low cost labor. So they're usually like, 45 minutes outside of the city center, usually in rough neighborhoods, there's full security over everything. Wow. And they're pretty, they usually are very large um, depending on like what their capabilities are and who their customers are. So a typical brand, a typical factory is probably gonna have 30 to 40 customers. So you'll see Adidas next to Nike next to Under Armour. So everyone's oh next God. to each other. Cause they all have the same capabilities that each brand needs um, sometimes like a Nike will like do a joint venture and own a factory because they don't want anyone to copy new designs that they have coming out. Yep. Um So yeah, they're they're very hot. If you go to a textile plant, oh, it's like our fabric mill. It's like the smells horrible. Oh no. Because um, <laughs> it's just chemicals. It's like just it's disgusting. Um, <laughs> it's so, and like you have to wear like an eye mask because it will sting your eyes. Like all the chemicals that are wow the guys that are dying the fabrics um tech, they're usually always outdoors um they need like air coming mm-hmm. in and out um and then of course farms cotton farms um going to visit and like getting to m- meet all the farmers and see all of. they usually have obviously land that they're yeah. growing and they usually have food crops next to the cotton um and then i've actually never been to like a synthetic fiber fabric process so like polyester right comes from oil i've never seen like i've never routed traced that far back to say like where is the oil being extracted from and how's it being converted into yarn like i've never seen that part personally
1: That's interesting. I think you made a really good point a little previously about like we're wearing our clothes right now and like no one really thinks like oh like where did this where did these clothes really come from but it comes from a lot of these factories where it's low cost it's like disgustingly bad conditions people aren't treated well Um, and I think that's a really interesting point so like how does is that something we should be uncovering as like Americans and if so I mean like how do you uncover that?
0: So there'll be like different PR crises that will happen. And that will be what like pushes the industry forward. So we had the collapse Mm. of Rana Plaza in 2013 in Bangladesh. And so like that thousands of people were killed. And so that wakes people up. I think Gap was in there, a couple of big brands. And so it really feels like it's a PR crisis, it's legislation and it's customer driven. Like those are the three drivers to like to escalate you know, or not to escalate, but to improve the, to escalate, or um, uh, I can't think of the word but to get the standard higher. Mm-hmm. Um, or like for me with an act, I'm like, let's just be transparent out of the gate to the customer about the experience and what's look, what everything is in our process. And like we can educate and, and drive change and, and bring manufacturing back to the markets. And then that people then can see firsthand, okay, this is a process why is no one else explaining this or doing this, um, for disruption? But it is like, I think it's also another big thing is China produces over 40% of global textiles. So I think our trade relations are so bad with Mm. China that, um, Joe Biden just, um, asked all us engineers to leave Chinese manufacturing plants like last month. So I think that like, that is another big driver is like, American policy towards countries and that well you know if if we stop doing business with China then the entire apparel industry is going to have to oh god figure its stuff out
1: (laughs) is that kind of like scary though because like so many people do do business in China and like if all of a sudden we pull them out I mean would that I mean like what are some of like the repercussions is that the right word for it but like it'd be just nuts wouldn't it be
0: yeah. I mean, I think people who work in apparel industry, like that's their greatest fear is, yeah. is that right there. Right. Because then like the way that they produce their clothing goes away, the cost that they take mm-hmm. in and they have to think of a new country, a new system, a new process in order to, to do what they've already been doing for years and years. Wow. Personally, I'm excited for it because <laughs> I'm just like, you know, I don't know if you have spent time in China, but it's, smog is horrible like so bad like this is gross but like I sneezed and it was like black like that's how bad it gets there yeah I was like whoa like what have I been like (laughs) um so I think that I want that to happen because I think that this linear economy and this way we've grown accustomed especially in the U.S. of designing for linear use and not thinking circularly
1: Mm -hmm. it's
0: wreaking havoc everywhere you know that we're not like hey we're gonna make a product but we're gonna think about all the parts in that and then we're gonna think about what to do with it afterwards so I'm like we got to get there because like driving from Jacksonville to Miami where I'm from like you just see these hills and you're like wow like guess we have hills in Florida all of a sudden (laughs) and they're like no it's landfill and they put grass over it so I think that I think that people, the the closer people's trash gets to them, the faster they're going to be incentivized to innovate. Yes. <laughs> That's my theory too. That's my, <laughs> my, my, my fourth theory. It's like, you know, Gen Z um, legislation, PR crisis. And then the fourth is like the minute that like trash gets to people who pay to be away from it is going to be the minute that it pushes things forward.
1: That's interesting. Is there any way that we can avoid that situation to get, you know, keep trash away? But like, that's going to take in my mind, uh, like people are going to have to have mindful thought on, you know, ways so they can reduce like their own trash. Um, Could you give us like, you know, like three ways people could do that? Um, I would love to be educated in this space. I know a lot of other people would be as well.
0: Of course. So there's actually Maslow's hierarchy of needs, but for fashion called the biarchy. And so- yeah, so it's cool. So it's like when you need something new, you like follow this triangle to say, like, mm. hey, like, can I borrow it? Can I swap? Can I thrift? Like, can I make it on my own? Like, before, and the last one is, can I buy new? And so I think that that inspires you to think about all these other options, like for Halloween, right? Instead yeah. of being like, I'm going to go buy something new, it's like, how can I, what do I need? And then how can I piece this together without spending exactly. money? Like I think that way. And then of course, like I apply that methodology to everything. Like I compost a recycle soft plastic at the grocery store. So it's just like anything that comes into my possession and put I then try to make sure it can be, um, it can break down in a place where it doesn't go into the trash. So that's kind of how I think of it.
1: That's interesting. How do you think, like, how has sustainability changed since, like, you first entered the industry with Under Armour? I think it was in, like, 2014, 2015 with sustainability. Um, so, like, seven-ish years or whatnot. Um, how how has sustainability changed in per, their perspective of, like, Americans, but also worldwide?
0: Yeah, so sustainability has so much, like, of a stigma, in my opinion, attached yeah. to it. And so I've been, like, very careful with it because sometimes people feel very, um. Like, like it's an accusatory thing when you're like mm-hmm. this is sustainable or this isn't because it's like they're doing something bad so I think it holds a lot of different weight and like a lot of people in my time working on the brand side I would find some people would equate it with energy savings they would equate it with water savings mm-hmm. um, electricity but then like other people would see it as just purely social it's human rights it's making sure there's no child labor so it's yeah. like what I realize is there's so many different definitions of sustainability based off of what each person's experience is, and then you have all these brands that are greenwashing and just choose and mm. like taking off what they think, you know, they that it will resonate with customers. Um, so I think for me, like where I finally landed was the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals because mm. they're quantitatively driven. They're 17 goals. They're ratified globally by almost every country. I think except. Russia. And there are like these 17 goals that say like, these are different issues we have to address as a planet in order to meet the needs of the present and create needs for and provide for the needs of the future. And that's what I think sustainability is, right? It's like yeah. being able to have everything you need <laughs> and then making sure whoever is coming before or after you is going to have access to the same resources and tools that you have. That's how I look at sustainability, whether it's social or environmental. Um, Does that make make sense?
1: Yes, that absolutely makes sense. Um, And I want to talk about like the 17 United Nations Sustainability uh, Development Goals, because that's actually I saw on your guys' website, like what you consider your North Star. Um, it says that's our North star and we partner with change makers in their respective fields that take action. Um, so I kind of want to shift the conversation to you and like Enact. Um, can you tell us um, a little bit more about like Enact? Uh, you're obviously very passionate about sustainability. You're probably one of the most mindful person people I've, person, people I've ever met. Um, so can you tell us a little bit more about how like Enact started uh, with the sustainability goals in mind? Um, I would love, love to leave the floor to you on this. I think it's a really interesting company.
0: Thank you so much that, for that feedback. I appreciate it. An ACT is, it is, I think for me, it's like, I don't do anything unless I pro- think it provides real value. If it mm-hmm. doesn't provide value, I'm not going to get behind it. Yeah. And I think that really, an ACT was born out of frustration in my industry, in my space of talking to the people who were the thought leaders and not seeing them do and the things I felt like needed to be done. And they knew what was missing. Mm -hmm. And I felt like everyone just looks to Patagonia and says, we're going to do equal to Patagonia. We're not going to go above, we're going to go equal. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, Patagonia should be the norm, not the exception. Like that's how, how, how horrible the situation is in that Mm -hmm. the infrastructure, like one shirt at forever 21 has traveled more than the average American and is sold at $4. It makes no sense this makes no sense. The math does not make sense.
1: Yeah.
0: (laughs) So I think for me, I was like, all right, an act, I'm going to like, I want to be inspired by a movement bigger than a product Mm. and a brand. So like, you know, I think when you start off as an, as an entrepreneur, there's a million things you need to do and it's coming left, right, center. Like, Whoa, here (laughs) we go.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Like where do I, how do I like decipher? And
0: so I feel like for me, and I was like, I can take one act every day towards the vision. Uh, I can move closer to this. As long as I take one act, it's okay. Like I'm not, yeah, I'm not, I have a vision in my head. It's not here in front of me, but I'm taking a movement and act towards it every day. And this yeah. is what I'm passionate about. So I'm going to make it ambiguous enough that whatever people's other passions are like Europe, you know, vision for your podcast that when you feel frustrated when something's not working or something doesn't go your way that you're like, okay, there's a larger community of people who are taking one act a day yeah. towards what they believe in. And so I wanted it to, to feel this, this community around activism, whatever that looks like for you. Um, and the towels like our Trojan horse, it's walking the walk, talking the talk in the space that we know how to do, but we know that there's a lot of other industries and spaces that need change and, and, and um, other people, that's their role to play in it. So we just wanted to say, we see you, we hear you, let's go. Um, so that was an act. And then our act, first act has been the bath towel. And yeah, yeah just hate the smell of mildewy towels, have naturally resisted growth of bacteria, <laughs> looked at the market, didn't see anyone doing anything. Um, got, it was like a $25 billion TAM. I was like, wow. okay. This is like in a this is a large market. There's a lot of gaps in it. We can yeah. be a product category leader in this space by providing a unisex brand that brings men into the conversation. Mm-hmm. We, you know, don't use any chemicals or dyes, so we have a limited color palette, um, which is a, mm-hmm. become an amazing talking point as opposed to a limitation, which yep. is what people thought. If you don't do what everyone else is doing, then like you're not going to make it, right? Yep. And my thought process is if you logically don't do certain things and back it up, that's more relatable than doing what it, like we're not providing value if we do what everyone else is doing. So it's really what an act has been born from.
1: I love that. So it sounds like it's been like a little bit of a movement that you're starting uh, to take it like an act each day, which I love. And then it's also, you saw an opportunity here. Uh, did you say like 25, $28 billion TAM um, total addressable yeah. market? Um, and I think that is really cool. You saw that there was a gap in there and then you shot it um, with the movement and with a product that uh, both both genders can love that is unisex.
0: I think, yeah. And coming from the apparel industry, it just, I hated feeling like this only fits for this body type. This only fits, yeah. you know, for like, you know, this group. And so for a towel, it just is like, I love being able to say, we can talk to anyone. I mm-hmm. mean, anyone can be a part of this movement and consume or like have this product. And so that was like another big thing for me is, is one size fits all.
1: Yeah. I'm, I, I want to ask, like, how do I ask this? How do you, cause I think people get behind movements. They get behind uh, a brand's reasoning for, to be alive to what do they say? Um, so do, how do you market that? You know, an act is more than just a towel. Uh, this is a real movement and we want you to be a part of it.
0: So I think, at the end of the day, we want people to be a part of the movement, but people have to love your product. It has to mm-hmm. be a better performing product for sure. them to trust you and get behind it. So for us, it's, we're really seeing product market fit and that people are loving our product and giving us reviews. And so through that, then I think it it that once that level, layer of trust is created, that bond, then people are like, okay. I'm really proud to talk about this. And like, what are they doing? okay. These are the things they're doing. Okay. Now I'm going to like be doing these things too. And so I think that that's what I've learned. And then I think sometimes too, like not leading with the brand, but like so many people, I think like always want their name, right? Like whatever first and last name as a brand. And it's like people to me, like for this example, there's a coffee shop near me um, it's called Palomino. And so they do amazing coffee. But if you're driving by and you see Palomino, you're not going to connect. They do coffee. But what they've done is they do a marketing sign that just says coffee. And then people come in and they see want coffee and then they find out it's Palomino. That's like what I want for an act is mm. people want a great towel. They want a sustainable towel. They come to us and then they find out it's an act who's doing that. That's the logic I like.
1: That's really interesting. Um, and like when you have, like when you're with Under Armour and like now Enact, um, I mean, how does sustainability, from an internal perspective, how is it different from when you're in corporate, Under Armour, 1,000 employees to Enact? How, what, what's different internally when you're in corporate compared to a startup?
0: Great question. A lot of times, um, or most times, everything is run through legal. Um, for corp- larger corporations. Yep. So all about compliance, all about brand risk, all about ensuring there's no potential lawsuit claims. So I think from, and you have also so many people who have to have the buy-in. You have, mm-hmm. if you're gonna do something, yes, you need legal, then you need to have the head of marketing. say, so I will go market this on our website or on our social media campaign. When that act, we just get to go for gold. We get to set this bar. Yeah, like, I don't have to like, be like, hey, we should like do the UN's like, uh, sustainable development goals. Like, I just get to do them.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, you know,
0: like, I don't need anyone's approval, except like, this is their approval of like, um, what's working and what's mm-hmm. not. So I think the nimbleness, the ability to to jump ahead and, and say, this is where I think is where we're going, excuse me, is like very freeing, as opposed to being like, it's going to take years we gonna have to get so many people on wow. board. And then guess what? They're gonna go to another brand and they're gonna start all over again. Yep. I hate that, hate
1: that. <laughs> <laughs> That's really interesting. I think you've had a really interesting life. Um, you know, being in Africa and then like, Working for corporate and then doing your own startup gig. Um, I mean, those are the three pieces we like covered about you. And I think it's super fascinating. Um, Is there a time in your life that you think like you grew the most? Like you look back and you're like, wow, like from, you know, 20 to 25, I grew so much. Um, Is there a specific timeframe that comes in mind with all of your experiences that you've had?
0: It's such a, I've never been asked this question, so I'm like, wow, good one, good one, right? Um, <laughs> I
1: did. <laughs> did.
0: You no, know, but I do believe in living life. Like my dad's like, this life is not a dress rehearsal. You've got to mm-hmm. go. And There's so it. I, you, you know, like you, you don't want to look back and be like, man, that would have been cool. But oh, like, yeah. I wanted safety. I wanted security. I wanted this like stability for myself. Mm. I think that for me, I was in your 20s. You have a different energy. Like mm. I was just a pistol like I had unlimited energy to do like to yeah. be in sleep in airports for 30 hours to like <laughs> go to new countries like now I don't have that same energy I mean I could tap into it if I need to but I prefer not to yeah. like now I'm like I'll just like take like my time and like yeah. I'll, you know <laughs> like, like I could just fly somewhere and be like flying to Asia and just go like right yeah. into the factory and work for the day like now that sounds like torture like I would just cry like (laughs) but um so I think my 20s was like I was gaining experiences and then the growing moment happened when I actually like extracted myself from the environment and my parents had a house in Florida um in Melbourne and I just went and lived there for six months by myself and Mm -hmm. I just really let things marinate I was like okay Brianna like you've lived in these countries you've worked for these brands you've had these experiences like how are you going to connect these dots into something that gives back? And I mm. think that was my growth was actually taking time, a time out and really processing every experience to figure out my next move.
1: It's interesting. So did you, how did you do that? You're alone for six months, but was it like writing through or is it just like sitting there and basically going back to the village of like no Wi-Fi and like, no, like no connection with people. Uh, how did that happen? Because I think that's actually a really fascinating uh, topic.
0: I went into it was incognito mode and that's when I started designing an act and I was like I'm going to take all of these experiences and all of these moments and all of these learnings and takeaways and I'm going to infuse them into something that Mm. I believe is beneficial for the industry for the planet for myself moving Mm. forward and so that was just a lot of journaling a lot of recounting experiences and then like, as you know, you're doing blogs and and you're, and you're pitching, you start to understand your story more Mm -hmm. of like how you got there. But I think that was the growth move was taking a leap of faith, leaving my job without knowing where my next paycheck was going to come and, and taking time to understand my journey that so far.
1: Interesting. Is it, how important is it I was, I think you just kind of hinted at it, but like, how important is it to like, know your story? Cause like being 23 years old, like, Oh, like, Oh, like I know my story. Like I grew up in Iowa, moved to Boston, moved to Austin. I have my own personal experiences, but if someone had to, if I had to give a concise story of myself, I don't think I could, I could try. Um, but I mean, how important is it? I mean, how important is it to like, know your story, um, for that growth period?
0: I think your story is, Is everything right? That's what you're a product of experiences that you've had. That's what shapes your reality. So, Mm -hmm. a lot of times, I think the scariest part for founders is like we're all like a little crazy, right? Like to do what we do. So, Uh it's like, it's like, okay, like something must have happened to us earlier on that like made us fearless. And so, I think that that's like something people don't talk about is I think there's like a lot of childhood trauma and mm-hmm. the storyline of founders. And cause there's like the thought that like, I can jump in here and I got this and I'll figure it out is like not in everyone. And yeah. I think it comes from, you have earlier experiences in your life that you have to do that. And then when you do that, it's not as scary. Um, so yeah, that's, I think it's so, I think with found, most founders, they say you're ability to your business not to get to where you wanted to get comes from when you can no longer solve problems Mm. and the scariest problems are not sales they're not your product it's your emotional development as a being as a human being that's the scariest part is and for example like for me i had a huge issue asking for help i have a huge issue being vulnerable so that's like part of my earlier like experiences as a kid. So then now, like when you're a founder, if you don't ask for help, like that's bit, that's bad, you know, it's really bad, but like, that's what was happening to me early on. And mm-hmm. so then I was stunting the growth of where we were going. So I think that it's just imperative to know yourself, to know the experiences that have sculpted you, because those are going to be the ones that are going to help you. Are they going to either plateau you or they're going to help you get to the next level?
1: That's awesome. Yeah, I think uh, going back to what you said there of like, you kind of have to be a little crazy to start your own company. Uh, <laughs> I was talking with my fr- one of my friends down here in Austin about that. And he was like, yeah, you have to be like a little crazy to like take that leap of faith to like, you really don't know what you're doing, but now eh, I'll figure it out as I go. And I, that was right on par with what you said.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what it is. But I think that like, you have to have had either had that modeled for you. You have to have somewhere where you've felt that feeling before. And you're like, I'm going to mm-hmm. figure it out. I got this.
1: Yeah, I want to ask like real quick. Like, are were your parents like entrepreneurial? Because there was a fascinating study that came out in July that I read. If like, if your parents are entrepreneurs, you're just kind of not bred to be an entrepreneur, but your chances of becoming an entrepreneur are just way higher uh, because you see them take the risk. You see the day to days. Uh, so were your parents and entrepreneurs? Are like, where do you think you're entrepreneurial? Like, oh, I'm going to go. I'm going to be a go getter and like just kind of fly without any wings.
0: It comes where it comes from. I think my parents are really hard workers. Um, yeah my dad's first-generation Irish, my mom's second-generation Polish, and so wow. everything my parents have is what they built, and so regardless of if it's entrepreneur, it's a startup or it's not, my brother and I were taught, we work, we we build what we want in life, and mm-hmm. so I think that that, um, but they, they're not, um, my dad was a college basketball coach, and so he builds programs at yeah. established universities, but like, <laughs> they're established. <laughs> so he's a builder, you know, as mm-hmm. it relates to the sports arena, the sports space, and my mom would always like have new business ideas and would do things but never had to provide for herself in order to see them through. So I think she's entrepreneurial, but it's like somebody asked me they're like, "When how do I make my job full-time as a, and as an entrepreneur?" And I'm like, "Make your rent dependent on it." Oh <laughs> yeah. I said, "Make your rent dependent on it." I but, like When you have to figure out if you're going to pay rent or not, you'll figure some shit out real quick.
1: (laughs) I love that. That's really good. Um, And we're going to end up with one more question as we are closing this book on this podcast. This has been super interesting. Uh, Like I said, you're like so mindful. It's blowing. It's like mind blowing. Um, I want to ask, like, if you could think, think back to your 20s. I mean, is there like one trait that like really stands out to you where it's like, I wish I would have invested in this a little bit more?
0: Hmm. I think for me, listening, uh, I'm going to say listening, patience, patience, mm. and experience. I think I was just always rushing to get to the next place, thinking that would be finally things would click yeah. without ex- enjoying the experience and the journey. And I think at the end of the day, it's really about the relationships you're building, the lessons you're learning, and mm. not about the end goal as much as I love an end goal. <laughs> I think that's the cult that's enjoying that process. Right. Like I'm sure you have goals for your podcast and goals for yourself, but it's like this moment connecting that like, that's the gold. And I wish I I'd, I'd learned that sooner instead of running so fast and so far.
1: <laughs> oh man well this episode went by very very fast uh we are coming down on time here uh I mean where can people find you where can people connect with you please plug it all you were awesome to have on the podcast. I love this conversation so I'd love for other people to connect with you as well
0: Likewise thank you yeah you can follow us at anact global on Instagram our websites Um, you can send an email to our website if you have any questions and then you can buy our product on Amazon and our website and several different wholesalers as well
1: Perfect. Well, everyone, please go check out that website. The links will be below. Uh, thank you so much again for coming on. This was an awesome episode. Learned a ton. Uh, very, very mindful. So I appreciate that part of it. So, yes, thank you so much.
0: Thank you so much, Ryan.
1: Hey, 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 everybody. Thank you so much for t- tuning into today's episode with Brianna and Colin of Enact. This was a great conversation about sustainability, mindfulness, building a story. Uh, at the end, when she talked about sitting down and really Take, taking in her growth, taking in her experiences and where she want to go for the future. Uh, that part really resonated with me. So if you love this episode, make sure to like it, subscribe and turn on the notification bell for all of our upcoming episodes as well. We have a ton of great guests coming on and we don't want you to miss out on any of these interviews. If you really love what we're doing, make sure to give it a five star rating wherever you get to your podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, you'll also love these episodes with our former guests. Check them out when you can when we'll see you on the next episode.